Cumberland Plateau and the University of the South. This is the Suwannee Review Podcast. My guest today is Stephanie Danler. Stephanie is a novelist, an essayist, a memoirist, a television producer, a mom. Mm. Stephanie, I wanted to set up for our listeners what I think makes today's podcast a little bit unique, which is when it's actually happening. It's late October in Nashville. You have turned in an early draft of your upcoming memoir, Stray, and you're in the editing process. So that in some ways, my hope is readers of yours listening to this podcast will not only get a chance to hear you read from the book, but will also, if they're listening really carefully, see some of the refinement that still has to go into the process of finishing a book, which is itself a long process. So many of your readers know you from your novel, Sweet Bitter, as well as some of the accompanying nonfiction you've written for publications like Vogue or the Suwannee Review. But obviously this is your first really delving into memoir on a much larger scale. I was wondering if first you could just talk about what some of the big challenges were with memoir versus writing fiction. Mm. Well, I see the challenges as having two sides and one is the emotional and one is the sort of the craft of it, right? The construction of it. Emotionally, I was raised by addicts and like most people in that situation, you are trained to keep secrets and to not speak about what goes on in your home. And part of the story of this book is learning how to talk about this part of my life and how to expose myself, the vulnerability that comes with it, and that vulnerability potentially leading to a better life in some way. Just getting the words on the page was extremely difficult. As far as the construction of a book, I think that the constraints around memoir are so false. They feel falser to me than fiction, where you've picked a beginning and an end from your invention. And so deciding what to put in from your life, deciding what to leave out, in a way, it felt so performative, right? This isn't the way I would necessarily tell a story at a dinner table or if you and I are chatting. You're making these decisions that are shaping the narrative and the narrative is your life. And it's also, as soon as you start to build a book out of it, it's not your life anymore. We jumped right into the middle of things. The memoir is called Stray. Oh, yeah. It's called Stray. June 2020. (laughs) June 2020. We're months and months away, it seems, although it's, it's just tomorrow. But the memoir is called Stray. It is about your childhood. It's about your adulthood. I was wondering also if you could just talk about the book's construction, its structure, and how you arrived at that structure. I knew I wanted to tell the story about my parents and that it was somehow related to my moving back to California in 2015. That was also the time that I started to write about my father's drug addiction for the first time in my life. It was the first time I had lived in California since I was 16 years old. It was also 10 years after a year of catastrophes in which my mother had a brain aneurysm that put her into a coma and left her 
mentally and physically disabled. And that same year, my father's crystal meth addiction came to life along with the explosion of everything in his life. Lost his house, he overdosed. Everything that he had constructed fell apart. And so I started there, a woman who moved back to California 10 years after it seems that she was orphaned in a way. And she also happens to be in an affair with a married man who's extremely cruel to her. Now, of course, in 2015, I did not see that this was happening when I moved back to California. I didn't see that it was a perfect storm of remembering things about my parents I didn't want to remember, being back at the site of uh, childhood traumas, and that I was also reenacting their self-destructive tendencies in this relationship that really threatened my mental health several times. And so... I needed, once I landed on that house in Laurel Canyon, on moving back to California, on rediscovering California, the beautiful parts of it and the hideous parts of it, how treacherous Los Angeles felt. Once I landed on that, that was the lens from which I could look back. And that's how it started. So that's how it starts. The book is structured, mother, father, monster. What's interesting about your answer is that it walks the line between life and art and their interminglings, how much we know, how much we don't know, is writing therapeutic mm. or is it a purely aesthetic exercise? I'm not exactly sure in some ways of the question I'm trying to ask. Maybe what I'm trying to get at is here you are, the occasion of you moving back to California was directly related to the smashing success of Sweet Bitter in the sense that your novel's success had suddenly bought you the freedom to go anywhere. Mm -hmm. And yet, interestingly, at this time of success and liberation, you go home. Maybe the question I'm asking is, at what point did you know or have a sense of what you were writing versus at that time where you just writing yourself into something? Mm. I think the original impulse to write about my father, it felt very mystical to me. It felt like a you know, a hook in my stomach had been planted by being back in the place where we are all from, uh, Southern California. It felt beyond my control. And I was also writing these letters with the man I was having an affair with. And I had an awareness that the two were related. But I, I do think survival mode is a really powerful way that we black out right? And so I was just trying to survive at that point. I came back home. My mother was in a state far worse than I had imagined. My father relapsed shortly after yet again, even though I had no contact with him. And I wasn't thinking about this as a book. It was impossible that I would ever write about my parents or ever write a memoir. But I also did know that through writing about them, I was trying to take control of the story. And I think about, I've been thinking about that a lot as I edit the end of the book, that writing about these people, the three people who have arguably hurt me the most in my life, I'm keeping them close to me, but also I'm taking control of the story, right? And I do think that there is a bit of catharsis in that. Which then, if I understand you correctly, for you, there is a decided therapeutic element to writing. 
And yet, interestingly, again, you make this decision to go back to California. Mm-hmm. Looking back on things now, since the fact of going back to California is the organizing principle mm-hmm. of the memoir. The plot line number one has to do with Stephanie's return to California, mm-hmm. a revisiting of certain disaster areas. Mm-hmm. What do you think it was about to make that conscious choice to go back or unconscious choice to go back? Well, I think at the conscious level, I wanted to start a life with a monster in California. I think I went there to wait for him to leave his wife and that that would be the place that we started over. I think at an unconscious level, I think that I knew there was a wound. And as Bart says, where there's a wound, there's a story. There was something so tender and invigorating about being there. I think that there's a pretty simple A to B journey that I go on in the book from apathy, which allows me to ignore my parents' pain, ignore my own pain, ignore the pain of the man I'm in love with, to the beginning of caring, of taking care of myself, making, trying to make better choices, taking care of the people that I love. And so I think that unconsciously, I knew that California was the place where this circle closed. We've been very lucky at the Suwannee Review to have published, I think, one of the germinating essays of Stray, which is Engram's California, which you published in the first issue under my editorship. It's about the green shoots of love with somebody, functional and responsible. He's named a love interest in the memoir and gets officially named as the memoir proceeds. It's almost as if by naming him something other than the love interest, he's anointed with uh, an identity beyond a bomb. Mm. But that had to be late 2016. Where were you at that point in terms of thinking about, again, the memoir as the next project that you were going to do? Well, I think when I wrote Engrams, I was at that point, I looked at the work. I looked at my obsessions that inform the work, which have a lot to do with the environmental disaster that is Los Angeles, the greed and theft and general pillage that that city is built upon. Plunder. Yeah. And when I wrote Engrams, I knew that it was a book, but I did not know when I wrote Engrams where that would end. I mean, I think in that piece, it's an incredible snapshot of a moment in time with my now husband, Matt, because I was very unsure that it would work. I had this attitude towards him. I thought that there was something so juvenile and so... Idealistic? Yeah, idealistic, but I thought that he wasn't damaged enough for me, that we would never be able to build something together because we spoke fundamentally different languages, which I actually still believe. I think that he has never been paralyzed by anxiety or depression. And at the end of the day, there are people that trust the world and there are people that do not. And I think that for those of us who do not, things like loving, taking care of yourself, they're just infinitely harder. They require a lot of work. And when I wrote Engrams, I didn't name him. We'd been dating for not even a year, but I was interested in what was happening to me, that I was starting to open up, that somehow he seemed connected to California, and that if I could open up to this person and to this state, that some sort of healing might occur. 
Uh, your answer is making me happy because listening to you talk, it becomes clearer and clearer to me thinking about engrams, how germinating an essay it is and how it contains like the acorn, mm -hmm. all of the themes. Talk a little bit about engrams, the essay, and then we can maybe launch more specifically into the memoir. Tell listeners what the milieu of that essay was, since in some ways I think it's where you became self-conscious in the best possible way about, I'm going to write this memoir. Absolutely. So the love interest takes me through California on a series of camping trips, as men like the love interest are prone to do. You know, they're very healthy, love the outdoors. And as we, as we traveled to Owens Lake, he wanted to see a piece of land art there, and we got there, and there is no lake. It was once the second largest lake in California. There were steam liners and white caps, and it was, it probably looked a lot like Lake Tahoe. And we got there, and it is a dry lake bed filled with carcinogenic, toxic dust that has destroyed this part of the Owens Valley. The towns are abandoned. It's truly a horrifying thing to see this expanse of dust and dirt where a lake should be, right? Where there should be life, there's nothing. And I became obsessed with what happened to the Owens Lake. Turns out we stole all the water and took it to Los Angeles and we built the second largest city in the United States. And at the cost of this lake, these rivers, and the people of the Owens Valley. What's fascinating about it is that once we got there, I realized that I'd been there before, many times with my father. We have a camp out in the Inyo Mountains called the Diggins. And my dad, on one of his rare visitations, used to take my sister and I out there to ostensibly toughen us up. And I truly had not thought about it in a decade. And the fact that Matt, the love interest, had brought me back there, that I was inclined to tell him this story, that I was remembering things about my past, both good and bad, the beauty of California, the horror of California, the beauty of my father, how desperately I had yearned for his affection and his absence, um, his, the huge shape of his absence in my life. It all was dropped on me like a ton of bricks. And that is what Stray is about, the remembering, the feeling. It's just amazing in October of 2019 how so much of the discussion about climate disaster is about what's coming. And yet, listening to you talk about Owens Lake, the climate disaster is already here. Mm -hmm. It points to this terrible human capacity. I think the worst thing about human beings is their adaptability. We can get used to anything. Amnesia. We can just get used it's to anything. Just yeah. And so that's just an observation that, boom, there it is. What I wanted you to talk about a little, though, in terms of thinking about how you start, whether it's writing memoir or writing fiction, but in this case, memoir, start to become self-conscious, aware of your themes. Dust mm. is a disaster. It's, to me, one of the central lines in Engrams, and in a way, it's one of the central lines in Stray. Talk about that a little and talk about then why start with the mother. Mm. So dust is a disaster. Is there something slightly tongue-in-cheek about that line? Because dust is what comes after you have 
drained an entire lake, drained even the groundwater from under that lake. So when it rains, it can't absorb anything. And dust is what comes after you've drained Mono Lake above Owens Lake. The Salton Sea is what you get after you've made a series of catastrophic decisions that are already so harmful in and of themselves. You're left with this dust that makes everyone around ill for miles and miles up and down the valley. It's those consequences that you, you, can't, you can't imagine as if it's not hard enough to lose parents, lose lovers, experience abandonment at a young age. It's the dust. It's the what is left at the very end, the failure of recovery again and again that is actually the most painful. And I think that starting with my mother, I mean, I think it was because it was the hardest for me to write about. And I think that once I anchored it to 2015, that was what I was dealing with while I was writing about my father, while I was getting settled, while I was exploring California with a love interest, while I was wanting to die, while I was with the monster. What was actually happening is I was trying to visit my mother once a week. And that was a trigger on all sorts of pain and self-destructive tendencies in myself. And it's the same sort of shock that I experienced in going to Owens Lake and being like, oh, wait, I've been here. When I saw my mother and how degraded her living situation had become and how she couldn't walk anymore, she was still drinking, she was still going to rehab, that we were moving, we seemed to be moving backwards from where she had been that that was the day-to-day and in many ways sadder and more difficult than the kind of showy dramatics of my father's collapse. This would be a great moment for you to read a section from Mother Mm -hmm. because in many ways each section of the book is organized around a central disaster. Why don't you go ahead and read the passage you've picked and set it up for us. Yeah. Tell us a little um, bit about this. This scene that I am about to read, my mother had a brain aneurysm in 2005 that left her physically and mentally disabled. And I moved home for the summer to nurse her right when she got out of the hospital. And so there are a series of scenes that take place in 2005 and this is one of them. Long Beach Memorial Hospital was proud of her. They published a photo of her sitting in their community garden on the cover of their newsletter. They removed her throat tubes, scratching and scarring her vocal cords. And she spoke. Nonsense at first, lovely infantile gibberish. She still relied mostly on blinks. Two for yes, one for no. My grandfather and aunt were desperate to buy time to buy more physical therapy at the hospital, more medical attention. There were too many unknowns. Would she speak? Would she walk? Would she be able to work again, drive? How would we afford 24-hour care? We read that the first three months were crucial in determining the success of recovery. My aunt got us two additional months at the hospital, and during that time, hope seethed through us. The right side of her body was initially paralyzed, but after a month of daily acupuncture, she could do small steps with a walker. She would be coming home. I was supposed to be in New York City that summer where I had been every summer since college started. 
My sister wanted me to come home. My grandfather needed me to come home. There was talk of not being able to finish at Kenyon because of the expenses. Everything was on hold until we saw what we were dealing with. I took my finals in Rome, then flew to Los Angeles through Frankfurt. She was considered a miracle recovery. We didn't have money for full-time care, but two days a week we had a professional nurse. She was a little lax with my mother, but she was kind. Five days a week, I was a nurse, my sister helping when she could. I often wonder what would have become of my mother if that care ratio was reversed. I only know that I tried. My mother was the size of a hummingbird. The hospital escort carried her up the stairs to her room, carried her in his arms like a little girl. She didn't remember her home, those wide, frightened eyes, her pulse racing so I could see it flickering on her wrists. She didn't speak a word that first day. Home is where the miracles started shrinking. Her fiancé, Bruce, who was present at the hospital every day for ten weeks, visited less and less. Then his calls shrank as well. Each one left her confused and agitated as she tried to connect to him, remember him. After one phone call, in which my mother mostly mumbled and nodded, I asked to speak to him. I need you to stop calling, I said. He cried into the phone. It felt obligatory. He was spineless, the kind who uses other people's pain to reveal their own weakness. I had only met him once. It's just, I have a son, I'm not rich, I can't. He went on and on. Bruce, I said through my teeth, of course you can't. No one is blaming you. Grow up and stop calling. She'll forget in a week. He continued crying, and eventually I hung up on him. Yet for all my bravado, very few things gut me as thoroughly as the memory of her saying in the bathtub in that squeaky doll voice, I have a boyfriend, right? She had to ask for her memories back from me. When I recall the times I've had steel in my blood where I wanted nothing but to survive, it's my grandmother's voice that comes out in me. I felt nothing looking at my mother, though her face was falling. No, I told her, you don't have a boyfriend. At night, I listened to her fluttery hummingbird breaths and felt the force of how quickly lives can change. Not just hers, but mine. Wiping out her memory had wiped out my entire childhood. I had Christina, but she was younger than me. Our versions of events vary wildly. It felt like there was no witness to my growing up, no one paying attention. A backdrop had fallen away, revealing an empty soundstage. The aneurysm also took away our chance to fix anything between us. It was all gone. Eventually, my sister and I slept together in another room with a baby monitor. That first week, I slept on a cot in my mother's room, sometimes right outside the door if I couldn't handle it. It wasn't the gross stuff. I don't care about taking her to the toilet, cleaning out the staples in her skull. I don't care about showering her, trying to shave her legs, trying to tweeze the hairs around her nipples which had grown long and wavy at the hospital. Don't care about helping her with tampons with when her period surprised us. Don't care about brushing her teeth, icing bruises that welled up every time she hit a wall. It was her breathing while sleeping, panting while dreaming. I knew in her dreams she didn't know what had happened to her, that she would wake up confused all over again. 
When I looked at her, I think I understood that to love is neither exhilaration nor safety, but instead this, painful, too tender, forcing a forgetting that's close to forgiveness. Interestingly, there's still a sense of hope on a part-to-part basis in the memoir. But since I started this podcast talking about where you are in the process, Mm. what for you right now, before the world sees the finished project, the finished memoir, what are you struggling with the most in the mother section and its relationship to the other parts of the book? What do you feel like you really want it to do that maybe it's not doing yet or it's really close to doing that you're happiest with? I think that the book ends with my pregnancy, really the ultimate symbol of hope that I would think that after all of this, I was capable of becoming a mother. And I think I often tell aspiring writers, friends who are writers, you just have to finish. Stop reworking the first 50 pages again and again and again because you don't know what they need until you've gotten to the end of the book. I mean, what I'm really struggling with in the mother section is that these are live wires and I don't, the rawness of being a new mother, of having a 10-month-old son and feeling the vacancy of my own mother, trying to imagine what it was like for her because her short-term memory is gone. Her long-term memory is spotty, but to be sort of in the dark with what motherhood means I have to connect the two for the book to work. And yet, even talking about it, it makes my throat close up. So that is something I have been wildly moved when writing fiction, thrilled, and I've cried. Writing memoir, you are up against the darkest parts of yourself. And if you cannot bring them to light, the memoir will fail, right? It will lose its authenticity. Right. The next section of the book is father. Mm -hmm. Whereas with the mother, there is this dramatic disaster of the mother's aneurysm whose dust covers your life, your sister's life, and you're constantly managing its toxicity and figuring out ways in which you can protect yourself from its irradiated particles. Talk then about the father's role in this homecoming and how you began to really think about organizing that section. It's in the book, but I really identify with my father in a way that I was not ever able to with my mother. She sent me to live with him when I was 16 because our relationship had turned abusive and had made chaos of our household. So even though my father was absent for the first 10 years of my life, we saw him maybe once a year. Stephanie, let's be specific. The abusive element of your relationship with your mother, it got physical. Mm -hmm. You threw her down the stairs. She threw you out Mm -hmm. and locked you out at 15. Mm -hmm. And threw my things away. And threw your things away. She Mm -hmm. divorced you. (laughs) So we're talking about a kind of orphaning. Yeah, a major abandonment that is really hard to imagine. And to be honest, wasn't what I was originally writing about. I was writing about the aneurysm and her failure to recover. 
and the way that her drinking and her depression had slipped right back into her life after a period of hope. Once I started visiting her, it wasn't the aneurysm that upset me. It was that abandonment when I was a teenager. It was her self-destruction when I was young. It was her telling me that she wanted to die and getting so drunk she couldn't speak or walk up the stairs, letting herself be walked over by men, by her parents. Um, Those were the wounds. There is a child in me that um, is still throbbing in pain about that. And in a way, the aneurysm took away any chance I had of healing that. She doesn't remember. She doesn't remember any of that. You can't make that up. <sighs> no. You can't make it up. But then you, uh, go, but then you go off to the father. Mm-hmm. So my father was immensely successful, charismatic, confident, social. He really was this golden presence in my life. At one point, I, um, I say that he's a god on loan from Olympus because he would come in and just dazzle me. And as I've grown up, I see so much of him in myself. And it's shocking because he didn't raise me. He was not around. But these years, these two years that I spent with him in Colorado from 16 to 18, um, they made me into the person that I am today. And I really believed that we were happy. And again, in one of those twists of discovery during the phase of writing, I thought I was writing about what I see as the collapse of his life, which was a cross-country road trip where he drove me back to my senior year at Kenyon College in Ohio. um, From? From Colorado. Right. And his drug use was at its apex, and he would overdose a month later, and the entire thing would unravel, but I didn't know that. I thought I was writing towards that point, but really what I was writing towards were those two years that I lived with him, that I thought we were really happy. We were really close. And he was actually such a neglectful, hurtful parent. And I just, I had no idea um, that he was training me to enable him, keep his secrets, and playing this game of disappearing and abandonment that I would come to reenact in relationships with men. So... Writing about my father took me to somewhere unexpected. And I there was a point with this book where I thought that it was going to be like a hybrid, like a I would be working in texts and I was going to use Aristotle and a lot more like stone fruits, actually. And like what we see from Melissa Phoebos and Maggie Nelson. And during the writing of it, I was like, this is just a child's cry. It's just a story. This person doesn't know how to contextualize her pain within philosophy and doesn't know how to reference poetry to get out of the scene. Like, I just have to let it be primitive and hurt and tell the story, get to the end of the story. This would be a good time to have you read a section from Father. This is a scene in which my sister and I are in the middle of my father's recovery from his crystal meth, opiate addiction, and alcoholism. It introduces the reader to what I believe is at the heart of his addiction. 
There's a rehab center tucked in the mountains outside of Estes Park, Colorado, a town known as the Gateway to the Rockies. It must be eight years ago now that Christina and I flew in from New York City and drove through a snowstorm to spend a healing weekend with my father who was finishing up his 30 days. For years, my paternal grandmother has been saying that my father is not a drug addict, but suffers from bipolar disorder. The last hospital he was admitted to is inclined to agree. They put him on lithium and thorazine, but they weren't mixing well. He had better addiction after a bottle of gin than he did with the pills. While the patients went through their own closing ceremonies, the family sat on plastic chairs in a semicircle around a space heater with other family members. They were haggard parents, bereft siblings, thickened men and women aged before their time by dealing with their addicts. We were usually the only children of an addict. The grieving adults would corner us during coffee breaks and tell us how strong we were. They always tried to touch our backs and shoulders, and if I was feeling compassionate, I would let them. We went around the circle and told our stories. My sister and I were at the end. We listened to the thefts, the car crashes, the lies, the injuries, the unimaginable actualized over and over again. I started thinking about which story about my father I would tell these exhausted people. I thought I would do the hard talking for my sister as I've always imagined myself her protector. I come from a long line of charismatic liars, I might say. The dinner parties are beautiful. Our main currencies are epiphanies and promises, highly inflated, though we ourselves remain completely bankrupt. I imagined some writerly grandiose bullshit like that. My turn came, and I remember getting out. My father is a liar. Before I erupted into tears, my sister handed me a Kleenex and said to the group, Let me explain. That was only his fifth relapse. When it comes to my father, I don't believe addiction is a disease. I don't necessarily believe he's bipolar. I don't believe he can be treated for any of the afflictions that we hope will explain his atrocious behavior. In my time with addicts, I've learned to identify those that are liars first and find great comfort in addiction because it allows them to practice their art. It's clear as I watch him sleepwalk through his graduation from rehab that it's not drugs that brought him here. It's what I call his black hole. It sits behind his heart. It's been threatening him his entire life. I know because I'm his daughter. He passed it on to me. I realized during these visits that I have been guarding against it minute by minute for my entire life. I've touched all its edges. This passage takes place in Brooklyn, and it is about the day that I decided to stop contact with my father. The day I let my father go was unremarkable except that I was happy. It was the year after his fifth relapse in Estes Park where my sister and I had flown in. I was 27 years old and engaged to Brad. I had never once in my life wanted to be married. When he proposed, I felt shock, then dread, then hope in that order. His eyes were wet as he held out the ring and I thought, why not me? I had always been involved with my father's recoveries. Though I never deluded myself, it was his children that would save him. He liked it when we were there because he liked to show us off, differentiate himself from the other addicts, assert superiority. Still, I made space for him in my life. 
He visited Brad and me a few times sleeping on the couch in our tiny one-bedroom on Grand Street in Williamsburg. On those visits, Stephen, my father, was subdued, chugging sparkling water, but still himself, boastful, full of stories, preferring to walk the entire city. I was often unsettled as he left, once to go to New Jersey to visit a friend I'd never heard of, then again to Philadelphia. He's using again, I would say to Brad after he walked out the door, and for weeks I would wait to hear news about the next disaster. He spoke of having money, though he hadn't worked since he was fired in 2005, six years earlier. I was never sure where he lived back in Boulder. It changed often, but recently he had gotten an apartment with a roommate. He wanted to become a Jesuit minister. He had hiking clubs, lots of friends. He spoke endlessly about his workout regime and meditation. He applied to divinity school. Nothing struck me as entirely logical. I used to say to Brad, My father never really hit rock bottom. I don't mean his overdose, the car accidents, or poverty. He never let go of the idea of who he was. Humility was missing. When I tried to call my father to tell him of my engagement, I was met with a disconnected phone. Not the first time. I tried again the week after. Then I called one of his sisters who went looking for him. He hadn't been living in that apartment for some time. He was living on the couch of someone else in the program who had kicked him out. He was not remotely sober. It had been a month and we couldn't find him. I sat at the table one night working on a bottle of wine and said dully, He's dead. The call's coming. Brad would say we didn't know anything, but when I was drinking heavily and could bear it, I could imagine my father unmistakably, as if I had a portal in my chest that allowed me to access his feelings. His life was dark. He was in places he wasn't meant to be, truck stops, crack houses, empty parks, this golden, graceful man, emaciated and lost. I saw him begging. I don't mean that he literally begged for drugs, though I know he did beg and did more than beg on many occasions, but that each of his movements trembled with desperation. He was a trapped animal wanting to escape himself. I know that as he fell into his black hole, he prayed. He seemed insane, but really he just wanted to stop falling. Thinking of his eventual death didn't hurt me, perhaps because I had been preparing for it for so many years. When it came, it would be a mercy. The thing I felt most acutely when I thought of him dying is shame. That he would die on the dark side of his life, not in his home or in the mountains he loved. He would die nameless, in his painful world that he could never bring to light. The end of summer Brooklyn light when you live near the water is concentrated and honeyed. Our apartment had only four electrical outlets, a toilet in the closet, but it was graced with a cast iron tub in the kitchen. At that point with Brad, it was the longest I'd ever lived in one place. The leaves in the trees outside the window were prolific, almost blocking my view of the East River. I was in a tepid bath midday, even though it was sweltering. Brad brought me a glass of ice water and went back to what he was working on. I knew my father was never going to get better. It wasn't rock bottom, it was actually just the right temperature, the right light. I suppose the wholeness of my life at that moment contrasted so sharply with wherever he was if he was still alive. After all the therapy, rehab, the jargon, the quixotic perspectives and contexts that allow us to fidget and escape the logical consequences of action, in my bathtub it was suddenly the truth. I am not getting my father back, 
I said to Brad, not because he's dead or because he's an addict, but because he was never there to begin with. The hardest part of remembering that afternoon is not the loss of my father. It's the way Brad sat on the floor next to the tub and talked to me. The bottle of Riesling he opened. He gave me such unflinching care. That, to me, was safety. I didn't see how some years later I would watch the movers toss boxes roughly. I couldn't imagine that I would leave him the same way I left everyone before they could leave me. I would say I was doing it to be honest, that I couldn't become a liar I would end up just like my father, but in truth, I still have no idea why I did it. We found my father a few weeks later at a rehab center in Utah. He hadn't been allowed to use his phone. When he finally called me, I didn't answer. I don't know who told him I got married. That certainly doesn't sound like something that's in draft form. Sounds good to me. But what are you struggling most with in that section? What, again, if we time capsule this, are you sitting there trying to get height on? What effects are you trying to sharpen? What are you most frustrated about in this editing phase, these final molting phases Mm. that you feel like you haven't quite gotten right yet? I think that I need to bring to the surface how it's affecting me in 2015, right? In the mother section, I am visiting the mother. It's quite clear that I'm going through something in the present tense with her, but my father and I don't have contact. It's a haunting, essentially. And I think that I need to bring my identification with him to the forefront and let that be the stakes of the section. And that is micro at the end of the day. But again, that's the painful part. How did I end up so much like him? Do I have the capability to destroy everything I've built? Will it all disappear? Am I going to hurt everyone who loves me? I mean, what happened to my mother is a tragedy. She was 46 years old and she had a massive brain aneurysm. Because she might have pulled it out. Yeah. She, she might have pulled her life out. It doesn't sound like she was quite as destructive mm-hmm. as your father. No, my father chose this. For him and for us, he chose to leave. He chose not to be around his daughters. He chose to substitute drugs for human connection, and he continues to choose it. Well, also, I think one of the most powerful things that you articulated when you read was how the failure of humility doesn't allow him to see his true self. Mm -hmm. It's as if both in recovery and memoir, insofar, going back to an earlier question, things can be therapeutic, that the best chance we have to make change, to get the dust under control, is to know what we're looking at. Mm -hmm. But that requires a stripping away and that vulnerability that is impossible for people who have armored themselves with substances, especially. And I do think that I don't consider myself a substance abuser, but I was heavily armored and still struggle with it. But it's in being honest and vulnerable that I have my best chance of not becoming them. Right. That brings us to the third section, which is monster, Mm. which in some ways, I think the section that presents the biggest challenges, because you have to really articulate what the disaster 
of the monster is and how shaking that relationship is the path to hope. Talk a little bit about what right now you've been challenged by, struggle with in terms of rendering that section. Well, this is an interesting one for, and one that every memoir writer under the sun has faced in that I am writing about a real person who um, I don't have contact with anymore, who our entire relationship unfolded under the umbrella of hotel rooms and in secret. And the secret is really the core of our bond. And I have no intention of disrupting his life, of hurting his wife, um, or of outing him, honestly. Um, I don't think that his identity is necessary to the book. Figuring out how to be honest about this affair, the way that I was treated, the way that I betrayed myself continuously without being specific in the way that I can be with my mother and father, that's a trick. Like, I, I don't quite know. That's like beyond my skill level as a writer, but I'm trying. Um, I'm trying to make it as honest as possible. Well, it's a challenge in a way, because as a memoirist, you're still responsible to make a character. Of course. And to tell the truth. Sure. And with me in Nashville, because this evening and tomorrow, you're going to be in conversation with Lisa Tadeo, mm -hmm. whose nonfiction book, Three Women, is burning up the world, continues to burn up the world. Lisa, with the Lina and Sloan sections, had, I think, somewhat similar challenges, particularly with the Sloan section, where mm -hmm. she has to render a character, but also mask identity. Mm -hmm. And you feel it, to be honest about it. I mean, I wrote that in my review of Three Women that I did for the Suwannee Review. Um, you feel the urgency and authenticity of the Maggie section in such a way that it really, it the Sloan section feels blocked. It mm -hmm. feels like Lisa is up against something. And I hope the point of the monster is really the way that the monster made me feel. And that is what I try to come back to. That his quips or the quirks of his job and what it says about his character aren't necessarily as important as the way that he destroys me. But yeah, it's a challenge, a trick. It's, um, I didn't think it would be this difficult. But yeah, you do have to, it, you do owe a character to the reader and to the story. And so I'm, I'm working, I'm working on that. So listeners who are aspiring writers take note of that moment of Stephanie's doubt being her passion and her passion being her task. Uh, <laughs> we will judge accordingly and sympathetically when the book comes out, but maybe this would be a great time to hear you read a section from Monster. So the monster is the name I've given to a man that I had a very long and very hurtful affair with. He was married for the duration of our affair and uh, continues to be, as far as I know. And this is a scene where I have a kind of epiphany. 
Since both of our parents have fallen apart, people come up to my sister and me at weddings or family functions to tell us how miraculous we are. They treat us as if we're refugees from a harsher continent we can't talk about or describe. In some ways we are. Deeply displaced, ambiguously orphaned, braced for the next catastrophe. But people were comforted by our youth, by our escape to New York City, by our early marriages. It's only as we grow older, each of us divorcing, that the praise turned hesitant. Blood is thick, their eyes say. I did all right for a long time. I married the kindest, most honest man I knew. I was always proud of the men I'd loved because they were so blatantly not my father. I like to think that's why it took me so long to see what was happening with the monster. You make it sound like a game, my therapist said. I was recounting to my therapist the ways in which the monster had hurt me, disappointed me, failed to show up, disappeared when I needed him, lied to me over and over. How he maneuvered his way back in, how cheap his promises were, how he surprised me, made me laugh how I was the only person in the world that understood him and his special brand of torment. God, I was so much smarter than his wife, who didn't even see what he was doing. God, how much more stoically I could bear it. Look how thin I am. Look how I wear it. How could he not be impressed? Things would be different when we were actually together. As I described yet another humiliating abandonment, I started laughing. I couldn't look at my therapist. I was laughing so hard. Are you charmed by this? She asked, concerned. You don't get it, I said. I stopped. I remembered brutally how hard I would laugh with my friends when telling them about my father's gout. You don't get it, I would say. It's the disease of kings. The game was exactly the same. It was a game that rewarded me the less I felt, the quieter I got, the harder I could laugh. If I made the monster love me, I was lovable. If the monster could get better, be a good, caring man, couldn't my father also? This was why the stakes of this love affair were atrociously high. I had barely survived the first one. Oh, I said to my therapist, you do get it. Again, pretty vivid to me. And yet there's what recurs, which is, it seems so obvious to a listener, to a reader, that there's this feverish repetition compulsion on the part of you, the character, the Mm -hmm. narrator, to somehow force yourself by doing things over and over again to defamiliarize yourself enough with the cycle to begin to possibly change. Mm. A psychologist friend once gave me this remarkable paradigm. It was an actual paper and it was called Relentless Hope and the Relationship to Sadomasochism. Mm. And the the model, the idea of, of it was that a person who is involved in a relationship characterized by relentless hope will continue to use hope relentless hope as a way to repeat the cycle of abuse so long as the gain exceeds the pain. Mm. But then there comes a point where the pain exceeds the gain. Where do you think you are now? Right now, both as a person and a writer with regard to that sort of relentless hope? 
Well, first of all, that's going in the book. So, (laughs) (laughs) dear listeners. Readers, you heard it here first. (laughs) Yep. Uh, That's the benefit of being interviewed about a book while you're still in the process of editing. You're like, relentless. Hope that's fucking great. And Um, and, uh, acknowledgements page. Anyway. (laughs) Where am I with that relentless hope? It's a good one. While I am trying to end this book with, an honest picture of how much love is in my life currently. This healthy relationship, I'm using air quotes, what a terrible phrase, healthy relationship. This And healthy, beautiful baby. Yeah, accompanied by a healthy, gorgeous baby. The best looking baby on the planet. I mean, we, course, we don't I mean, need to go on. into that right now, but it's true. Um, <laughs> how to be honest about that without closing the circle and saying I'm healed because there is nothing. If I've learned anything from my parents, it's that it can come for you at any time. It can come for you when you're 46 and when you're 50 and when you're 16 and it will come for you again and again. And the it in this case is yourself. Your black hole will come and ask you to sink into it. And my work on being able to make good choices and take care of the people I love will never be finished. And writing this memoir is a perfect example of it. In this glorious year of having Julian, my son, I have been enmeshed and tangled up with my mother, my father, the monster. I've conjured them. I've brought them all back into my life in horrific ways, actually. And it has been a cloud hanging over me, reminding me that this moment that I've landed on is a resting place and not a final stop. Stephanie, in the spirit of defamiliarization and getting height on your problems, growing through writing, sharing with readers, one struggles in the hopes that the gift of art is truth and truth will set you free. Given that we said that in some ways engrams contains the seeds of stray, I thought I'd read the end of engrams to you. Aristotle says the beginning is more than half the whole. So I think I'll leave you and our listeners with this. This is the last paragraph of engrams, California. Why? When I found myself unexpectedly 16 miles from the diggings, was I able to unearth a single word to lead the love interest closer to the truth about me? I've forgotten about the water. My grandfather was able to build the diggings because of a pipe that juts straight out of the mountainside. It pumped water, freezing, the color of quicksilver, into a bucket which we bathed out of, yelling from the cold. The water overflowed into a ditch. As children, we called it a moat. That moat encircled the property, lined by grass on both sides, in a ring of vivid green, the diggins, our kingdom, fertile, sheltered. Within the perimeter were strands of cottonwoods, apple trees, wild roses, grapevines that weaved through an arbor and shaded us during meals. The mountains around us were barren save for some sagebrush and tumbleweeds, a vacant, 
echoing beige for miles, and then this breadth of green screaming hope. Stephanie, thank you so much for being on the Suwannee Review podcast, but thank you more for being such an integral part of my editorship and letting us grab onto your broad, flightworthy coattails, not only as you make your own journey, but uh, share your writing with our readers. Thank you so much for having me, Adam. It has been an honor at every step. Thank you for listening to the Suwannee Review podcast. If you like what you heard, the best way to support the Suwannee Review, America's oldest continuously published literary quarterly, is by purchasing a print and online subscription at www.thesuwanneereview.com. To discover what's happening at the Review, visit our website or follow us on our Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook pages at The Suwannee Review. Special thanks to our producer, Helen Wynana, and sound engineer, Alex Martin, with music by Annie Bowers. Until next time, this is The Suwannee Review, new since 1892.